Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. All right, folks, this week I'm proud to present to you uh, my friend Jack Zamblin. Jack is the product manager of the Cosmos SDK. So he works with Tendermint Incorporated in creating the software developers kit for people all around the world to create their own custom blockchain. Now, there's over 100 projects in the Cosmos, larger Cosmos ecosystem. Uh, One of those projects is, as you may know, Regen Network, uh, the project that I'm passionately engaged with, working to create an ecological contracting platform. So um, Jack and I had a great conversation. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Um, Some of the topics that we covered were um, digging into some of the game theory behind uh, blockchain, um, money is a meme, and um, how money is a social construct and why that's important, and some of how that fuels the uh, Web3 and blockchain movements more generally. And um, we also talk a little bit about what he's been learning as a product lead at Cosmos and um, whether or not coding could be considered an artisanal craft. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jack. Welcome to the Planetary Regeneration podcast, Jack. I'm so excited. Planetary Regeneration. Nice. I like it. Yeah. Um, Would you like to just take a quick moment to... um, sort of introduce yourself to whoever might be listening and uh you know especially you know like why are you working at this sort of intersection of decentralized technology and finance um and cooperative open source movement that you're you know sort of in a leadership position what brought you there in your life life journey that's a great question and a really Great way to put it, Craig. Yeah, um, so uh, as far as me, um, you know, I'm Jack Zamplin. I'm the product lead over at Cosmos Tendermint. Um, but how, how I kind of got here, I, as far as the finance piece of it, I was in accounting and business administration major in college, um, very interested in financial accounting job I had um, in college my my junior fund up in me the last day there was the first day of September in 2008 so uh, about a week two weeks after I left that job elapsed the bottom fell out of the market and the that I ended, was working for ended up closing about two months after that um, so my plans post-graduation to go work up in finance in New York kind of died at that point. Um, I wow. ended up spending a few years cooking professionally at a fine dining restaurant in Richmond, Virginia and moonlighting and, you know, um, a company that made sausage and worked on a few food trucks and made some ramen for a while and uh, nice. had a career <laughs> in food, which is kind of fun. Um, and then after that, you know, the hours are long, the pay is kind of rough it's hard to start your own restaurant so um i was a career change ended up doing a kickstarter 
uh, company out in Montana, and through that, um, sort of started teaching myself how to code in an effort to automate some of the marketing tasks I was That was at least initially what I was coding, but uh, ended up falling in love with open culture and ended up to a boot camp, moving out to San Francisco and starting to look for jobs. And I think, Greg, we we're talking about sort of this open source ethos. That was really software in a lot of ways. And the people that I've met are just wonderful, want to share their knowledge and want to talk about what they do and, and spread it to as many people as they can. And the first job in software that I got was a company that built open source technology. And um, I, I've only worked in open source since I've been in software. Um, so yeah, those those things are very important to me. And also at the same time, sort of like marrying that finance background, you can imagine how I was pretty drawn to cryptocurrency, which is like open source plus finance. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of those things, I think in 2008, 2009, I don't think I ever thought I would work in finance again. And it's funny sort of coming back to it in a roundabout way. And now I find myself talking to like a bank and JP Morgan sometimes. And it's like, feels, uh, feels familiar in a weird way, but also coming at it from an angle. Totally. Um... Did that uh, sort of answer the question you're asking? Yeah, well, it, it it did. And I so then I have more questions emerging. One of them is sort of, so given that you have some experience, some direct experience in the, the finance industry, the centralized yeah. finance industry, yeah. uh, why is it important to have sort of an open and decentralized approach to finance? Like, what does that make possible that otherwise wouldn't exist? And what's at stake if we don't, you know, have some balance in terms of like openness and transparency and um, decentralization in the financial industry? I think that the, the real power of capitalism is the ability for large numbers of experiments to be run independently and to give people the um, the tools and, and the funds to sort of go do that. You sit over money and finance too much, it leads to fewer experiments being run, it leads to less, less efficient markets, and it leads to less financial inclusion generally. Um, and I think when you see a lot of things like the environmental issues that you guys are working on, and a lot of the negative externalities that come out of companies, a lot of those come out of large companies that are essentially government supported. And if you look at the oil industry and healthcare and a lot of these other sectors that are experiencing extreme cost inflation, you know, they're basically government protected sectors. And maybe it's one of those. The US dollar is supreme in the world and it's controlled by which is like seven or eight people. So having global money supply tightly controlled by a really small group is potentially bad. 
copying currencies is innovation and economic advancement for, for a lot of countries. So I think moving to a world where we're allowing currencies to compete with each other and decentralize control to larger groups and letting social groups sort of define what they value is going to lead us to a much more efficient market and an efficient way to organize ourselves. Um, in, uh, in environmental integrity and in order to allow those communities to codify that value somehow and then work to improve ecological health you need to have some way to quantify it and, and the concept of money is a really sort of natural way to do that and it provides people incentives to go then fix the things that are broken um does that, I, I feel like I kind of got away from the, the no, that's, question. No, that's super but. helpful context. And where, where it leads me to be thinking, so just like to frame what emerges for me is, okay, so what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is, um, you know, essentially sort of decentralizing and opening up the, the, the basic building blocks of capitalism allows for what's good about capitalism to be, hey, Dad. Ooh, that looks good. That's <laughs> okay. This is going to be an interesting one. My internet is also unstable. Totally, but it's it's good, and, and you know we can always we can always go back and, and redo any portions or whatever. But uh, yeah, this is a, a fun conversation. I do enjoy talking about this stuff. I think one Let's, of the um, cool things about the blockchain space is that you find a bunch of people who want to talk about big ideas and cut the videos. Yeah, let's try that. Um, okay. So, so what, where I was going with that is, so there's, I think what you're saying is if we decentralize, if we decentralize and open up the building blocks of the financial system, that is like one of the underpinning elements of a, a capitalist approach. What's mm -hmm. good about capitalism is that it allows sort of independent, um, and so it allows for agency. It allows for people to just like yeah. say, I'm going to do this and then go out and do it. Uh, yeah. um, so what are some of the, so, so that makes me want to talk a little bit about, you know, capitalism, free markets, you know, libertarianism and, you know, what I perceive as some of the fundamental assumptions actually that are pretty deeply embedded in the culture, like the crypto culture. So um, let's go there. Like what, okay. um, what are some of the dangers? Like, is there a downside to sort of like unfettered, complete and ubiquitous capitalism? Yeah, I think that capitalism and modern culture in a lot of ways sort of like drives people apart and we are inherently communal beings and we need to exist within a society but in, in stable large-scale societies we also need to provide people freedom so the way that we kind of mediate that is through government um and i, I kind of view libertarian libertarians and, and people with that bent as making the argument that the level of government we have now is stifling innovation or making it create disruptions in the way that we're allocating resources or whatever. Um, 
and that we need less of that. And I think kind of at the core of some of the libertarian arguments, dangers there, obviously a more atomized society in, in weaker communities, but, you know, within that kind of anarchist libertarian um, spectrum, there's a lot of different schools of thought there. And, you know, obviously with my use of the word communal and communities, there's, you can tell there's much more nuance there than I think this like government thing and like, yeah, sorry, it's a very ill-formed thought. Um, well, no, there's something there that's, that's, that's really interesting. So, so you're kind of saying the, the, the good part of capitalism, which is allows agency and sort of independent initiative is also the downside of capitalism, which is it tends to atomize us. Um, yeah. And um, I think that's really insightful and kind of, you know, an important, yeah, it's sort of like maybe that's a foundational premise. And I'm wondering, okay, so what does that have to do? Because it, it sort of feels like on there's this paradox in terms of, for instance, proof of stake as a building block. So, so there's this paradox between um, the un, sort of like unfettering and unleashing the creative power of individuals or small groups, um, while at the same time acknowledging what I'm hearing you acknowledge is, wait, we also have to figure out a way to knit ourselves together and have healthy cooperation and agreements with one another and we're social beings and so just intrinsically i'll be a healthier human if i have friends and family and community so there so okay so what does proof of stake have to do with that that sort of like paradox between individual initiative and sort of like the the, the imperative around communal health for a, a human or humans yeah, I think that's an excellent, an excellent thing. I, I think the way that we've, as a society, kind of dealt with this is by allowing people to create sort of mutual organizations, like companies or cooperatives, or um, there's a bunch of different words for them, in, in pooling their labor and resources together to achieve common goals or live in a certain way. And I view proof of stake as kind of a way of writing those contracts in code and removing potential points of friction and allowing people to experiment with new models, governments. Um, and because there are these sort of economic primitives deeply in there, these communities already inherently have these kind of ideas of value, whether it's social value or physical value in the case of companies that they need to keep track of. And being able to build incentive schemes around that helps to build stronger communities. Um, so let's take a step back. I think there, we're, there's, a, there's sort of like a rich, this is a really rich place, but take a step back and explain as if I'm someone who's you know slightly crypto skeptical and doesn't really understand what proof of stake means. Sort of like walk me through what you yeah, know, proof sure. of, what is a proof of stake network and why, why might it benefit people who are looking to cooperate? And why is it interesting from the perspective of sort of like um, um, autonomous 
agency and people just taking initiative. So why, how does proof of stake relate in that? And just like pitch it to me, basically, why is it uh, interesting? Yeah, I mean, what's one of the most fundamental units of cooperation that most people use now? And I, I think a company is a great example of that. Um, in companies, we have cap tables, which is basically ownership. And pretty much what proof of stake does is it takes a cap table and it says, hey, computers, this is what we're going to use to agree on what data is authoritative in this system. <clears throat> and that gets really technical really quick. So mm -hmm. let me maybe try to dumb it down a little bit. Um, if, we're, if we're thinking about this kind of cap table analogy or you know, owning shares in a company, um, that company might have a certain rule set of like how it's accepting orders or you know carrying out various work and there's decisions being made on how to change those rules like we want to take contracts from companies that are only small companies because we want to support the local the local economy and the the shareholders would vote on that proposal and they would change the rules to make it so that that company only works with smaller companies. With a proof of stake system, you basically take that voting and that share ownership and that cap table and you put it on this set of computers and the way that the computers agree is through that cap table. So the people with the most stake have the most votes and obviously there's a bunch of different, that's the most simplistic version of proof of stake. Now, tying that up with governance, I'm sort of glossing over a bunch of technical detail at the bottom of the stack, but for all intents and purposes, that's kind of how it works. Right, and there's, um, there's also, although there's a difference, which is in, in by and large, in shareholder-based capitalism, 51% vote will carry the day, right? And in proof of stake, by and large, you need 66.1 or, you know, over 66% in order to sort of, in quotes, carry the day. Yes, that's definitely true. I, I mean, and that's where the sort of distinction between the the voting and the the consensus mechanism comes into play in order to you can think of that almost as like overriding a veto you know if 51 percent of the if like let's say 45 percent of the company or something oh well no sorry in this example it would be like let's say 30 percent of the company is really really not interested in doing something and um they are trying to stop the network um the the majority of the network could essentially override that veto and fork them out of the the network. In this, uh, <laughs> trying not to get too technical on this one too early, but are you familiar with the framework of like uh, voice loyalty, voice, and exit? Um, walk me through it. Yeah. Okay. So you know when you're in an organization or any sort of collective group 
one way to look at your options are loyalty, i.e. be loyal to what the group wants to do and, and be a good member, whatever that means within the context of that group. Voice, voice issues that are problematic with it and try to solve them from the inside or exit, leaving. So in, in the forking scenario where there's a very strong disagreement in, in one group it is gonna break away from another group, that would be the exit case. Voice is sort of void, uh, voting, would be voting within the proof of stake system. And, and then loyalty would obviously be just, just sort of like upholding the status quo. Um, but these proof of stake frameworks, and, and I think cryptocurrencies in general sort of have this property where they kind of respect that, that framework. And when I think about forks and how communities kind of come together, form, and then potentially break apart and splinter within this ecosystem, and I think a lot of other ecosystems as well. I, I find that framework kind of helpful for thinking about. Yeah, so, so a proof of stake network, you have a group of people, I mean, one of the biggest, one of the big, biggest critiques I've heard about proof of stake is essentially that it's sort of, it, the risk is that it recapitulates um, the sort of, it, an, ex, an existing oligarchy where the only people who can afford initially to invest in the network are people who already have, um, you know, a certain amount of access to finances and they may not actually be the right stakeholders. It's like, it may not, the, the, the this stake distribution and therefore voting distribution may not actually represent the healthiest distribution for a set of stakeholders who will make a network healthy. Um, it, it I, I don't think that's a fundamental, yeah. yeah, I don't think that's a fundamental issue with proof of stake. I think this just goes to show that distributing resources evenly and properly among any group of people is a really hard problem and one that we don't do well as a society. Right. Um, Cause there's like a tension in capitalism where you need to be capitalized and there's a yeah. certain set of people, there's like a propensity in the system that having access to capital begets more access to capital. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of capitalism, but if you go back to this sort of competing monies idea, groups can start their own sort of monetary units with whatever they value Mm -hmm. And then because they're living in this kind of interconnected blockchain universe, if other people value the same things they value, their currency that they've created and given value to it in their own community will have value outside of that community as well. And that's where explain you can sort that, of like... Explain that a little bit more to me. So if I... If, if you... So I think what you're saying is if you succeed in having a group of people who who value a staking token because it gives them access to um you know voting governance and maybe the rights to earn from this what this network is doing um and they value yes. that and it's strongly held and there's conviction about it that then translates to uh, you know other people also desiring or wanting that currency to have to, to gain access to that yes okay so so then you, yeah, I don't want to gloss. I think you said it fairly succinctly there, yeah. Yeah, so, and I don't want to gloss over the, the previous thing, which I think is really fundamental. And I'm sort of like taking a beginner's mind 
perspective here for listeners, I also am somewhat bought into this uh, idea also <laughs> like a caveat to the listeners. But what I'm hearing you talk, talk about in terms of like a competition between money. So what does, can you just actually take a moment to define what you think money is and and maybe talk about how that relates to what, for instance, a staking token is and what the relationship there is. And then we can go into what a world looks like in which these currencies are actually competing with one another. Yeah, I mean, think about a tribe that says, this group of 500 stones is the way that we're gonna vote and make decisions. And whoever has those stones, when at the time of a vote, they're gonna place them on whichever vote they wanna vote on and we'll make the decision with the most stones. Now, those, those tribe members will end up trading those stones for various things. People who are more interested in governance and are more passionate will be able to convince other people to vote for the outcomes that they're interested in. Um, and that's, that's how that system would work. Now, that's like a, just a, a basic economics system. So if that tribe runs an area that has a lot of value associated with it, let's say they're governing an area with a lot of fishery resources, um, the value of those stones that they have is going to go up and people are going to place value in that. So it all goes back to like what we view has value as humans. You know, money is one thing, but then there's also other things that we place value in. Stocks, bonds, a lot of these other instruments that have value. Are they money? They've got some of the properties of money, but not all of them. And I, I think that the types of instruments that are getting created by these proof of stake systems, you can think of kind of as stocks and bonds and um, sort of these things that have some of the properties of money that we invest value in and that we view as valuable, but maybe aren't necessarily, you're paying for a latte with it. Um, so if you think about it that way, throughout history, humans have placed value in a number of things. And going back to that Stones example, which I did relatively poorly, you know, cowrie shells, all different kinds of things that we've invested value in. Um, and you can represent those on a blockchain fairly easily. Right. So I kind of talk myself in a circle there. Well, so what I'm getting from you is, okay, so it, number one, it's sort of, there's this basic assumption that, um, that money is actually... I don't know if derivative is the right word, but it, it derives from a social contract between people agreeing on, you know, sort of like a basic unit of accounting for, you know, some specific, some specific either actions or, or resources that have value to everyone. Everybody's saying like, yes, yeah. we have, we agree that. And there's, and, and I think that, generally for people that's implicit and people don't even think about that right but what what you're unveiling is that that is just like a basic function so if yeah if we take that for granted and then move back to okay there's a world in which monies are competing different yeah. currencies are competing with one another um how would you describe what the US dollar represents as a unit of account and 
you know, um, what being bought in and all and sort of having a fundamental belief that the US dollar is the currency, what does that then mean about, you know, the, the agreements we're making with one another as a society? And how is that different from say, you know, like an atom, for instance, you know, what are the fundamental assumptions baked into an atom having value, the Cosmos Hub's um, native token, and what, you know, being bought into that unit of account, um, what does that engender in people? Let's take that second part and let's just talk about the dollar thing for a second and then come back yeah. to the other piece of it. Yeah. Um, as far as the dollar thing, I mean, one of my favorite sayings that I've heard since I've gotten into this space is money is a meme. And it really kind of is. It's just this basic idea that this piece of paper <laughs> is valued at a dollar and there's all these other things out there in the world that I can go buy for it mm -hmm. with it. And obviously that's just this huge, huge network effect of a bunch of people accepting that as a value. And I think when you see the Bitcoin price and there's these huge spikes and then it levels off for a little while and there's these huge spikes, there's waves of people coming in and saying, hey, I think this thing has value. And then they bid it up. And some of those people are like, yeah, maybe this doesn't have value and they leave. And then there's, but a lot of people end up staying and there's just, just this increasing number of people with each market cycle that believe that these cryptocurrencies and these digital assets have value. And as that number of people grows, this sort of digital economy kind of grows along with it. In order to sort of like reach the scale of the dollar, we need to convince a few more billion people that cryptocurrencies have value and will be around in the long term. And that's, that's just a continue, an ongoing challenge for our industry that we're going to be facing for the foreseeable future. Um, the dollar is just the current world reserve currency. It's the most widely accepted currency out there and, and it has the strongest network effect. Right. And well, what, what are the underlying, from your perspective, what are the underlying assumptions about that are sort of baked into the US dollar? That, like, what, where is the value of the US dollar derived from? And what's the social contract that we're sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, buying into when we choose to use the US dollar as, you know, our, our basic unit of account? I mean, you know, one way to look at it is you're buying into this U.S.-led monetary system that's guided world affairs for the last hundred years, or, you know, you can look at it that way, or you could look at it in a very simplistic way and say, there's this collective delusion that bills that are green in color with certain patterns on them are extremely valuable and scarce because of the way that they're issued and blah, blah, blah and people view that as having value do do we do you want to like dig into like the fed and things like that or is that sort of I mean, uh, we could i'm also so you know i i have the sense that there's that 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 even thinking about the fed and the mechanics of it is sort of like going in and talking about the difference between 
you know, tender mint and hot stuff as a consensus mechanism or something like that. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. Whereas I'm more interested sort of at in, in an essence level, you know, what are, what are the assumptions the basic assumptions, you know, if, if we're thinking, and we'll get to this conversation maybe, but you know, like different proof of stake networks are gonna be trying to achieve different things, I assume. There's also a, like a technical piece of can they achieve it and keep it operational, right? And that's like mm -hmm. the Fed. But like what is trying to be achieved by the society or, or, or like the social contract that the US dollar is derived from? And um, I, I mean, I have I have an I have an opinion about that. My my opinion is that it's. I mean, I don't actually I don't know, quite know what we're trying to achieve when we all believe in the U.S. dollar. Yeah. But, but somehow it, underpinning it is like the coercive uh, um, power mon monopoly it's on like violence and coercive power yeah. of the U U.S. military and the ability to maintain strategic oil re reserves that are then the physical asset that backs the US dollar as a reserve currency, I think is like part of it. Like what, yeah. what's all, what that I mean, is all pointed towards. That's basically like saying, that's basically like one group, and then this gets back to the distribution question. This is basically like one group saying, our distribution is the best distribution out there, and you're going to use this. If you don't, we're gonna send tanks and planes to blow you up. And like, that's kind of what the dollar is in a way. And interestingly enough, I think Bitcoin and proof of work mirrors that in a very interesting way where there's this kind of arms like arms race like dynamic with buying miners. And it's essentially these miners going head to head every block as to who has the most hash power. Um, so I think there's an interesting parallel between this sort of um, currency backed by violence with the U.S. You know, if you want to look at it that way, that's a very sort of meta way to talk about the U.S. dollar. Um, and, and Bitcoin, which is sort of backed by proof of work, which is sort of mimics that same system. Right. Um, There's a competition between people in order to like, you, and, and I'm just like, there's like a, it's like nested. So, so... Yeah. Bitcoin is competitive within itself and Bitcoin is competitive outside of itself. So, so earlier you started with this sort of theory of competing monies, right? Competing mm -hmm. currencies, you know, um, so let's go back and talk about do you have competing a, stores of value is a better, is a better phrase, but yeah. Okay. Okay. So competing stores of value, do you want to distinguish between, you know, like, um, I mean, maybe a currency is something that you buy a latte with in a store of value. You know, that's a loaded term. And obviously, if you're talking about store of value, people are like gold and Bitcoin. But, and, uh, you know, I, I haven't dusted off my economics textbooks probably as, as recently as I should. And there might be a better word that I could be using here. But, uh, you know, Apple stock has value because Apple produces iPhones and they are paying dividends on it. And, you know, I guess what I'm talking about is these instruments that are created in proof of stake networks, these communities that we're talking about sort of value them and, and use other resources to sort of pay for those and sort of establish the value of them. Mm -hmm. Is okay, that too so, abstract? Well, I mean, I'm following. I'm not, uh, it, all of this is 
sort of at a level of abstraction that I think my sense is one of the struggles that we've had at Regen Network is trying to bridge into a very practical, pragmatic, you know, how do we how do we how do we care for how do we care for the ecological commons and what is the role of the market in the relationship to the ecological commons is kind of like the fundamental question we're asking all the time. Mm -hmm. There's like some pretty pragmatic, you know, a lot of the people in that, in, in that world are just very, I think, rightfully so very pragmatic about, you know, what are we talking about here? We're talking about soil health and we're talking about biodiversity and we're talking about like, is there a forest or not? The, you know, and then it, and then it translates up into these, um, okay, so what are the economic forces that create rivalrous, dynamics between people in which they make choices that end up shooting themselves in the foot, degrading their ecological commons, you know, and crashing our biosphere, essentially. So, yeah. And what I struggle with a lot, and part of the reason why I'm sort of like still like pulling on this thread with you is um, somewhere along the line, if you follow that chain deep enough, you get to the point where you're asking, okay, well, what is it that we're, what's the game that we're choosing to play? And what is the unit by which we measure our success or failure? Which is sort of like a way of yep. talking about money. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so that's why I want to explore this because, yeah. because sort of part of the Cosmos vision, the interchain vision is that actually we need competition between money between monies or currencies or stores of value because yeah. um, and, and region network is we're like throwing our hat in and we're saying, great, that's a cool thesis. What, what we're saying is the best store of value is one in which there is a direct link to a tendency to better steward the underlying ecological living capital that the entire existence of humanity and the planet exists on. So if there's a currency yeah. that properly accounts for that and allows for um, regenerative cooperative outcomes in the stewardship of that, it will be the most competitive, essentially, is kind of what we're saying. Yeah. However, that is a, a layer of abstraction that is not accessible to most of the people that we, that we in order to succeed, we need to have a stake in the system. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just sort of explaining one of our basic problems, which is the, 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 the overlap of people who have the right skills and, and the right beliefs to dig in and steward landscapes and participate in a pretty sophisticated, complex sort of, you know, like monitoring schema so that we have the right accounting around the game, essentially. Yeah. Uh, those those people have an uneven overlap with the people who are able to, at this current moment, speculate on the market, the market's success. So, you know, how do you bootstrap a, you know, how do you bootstrap successfully an initiative to um, create a cooperative a, a co-op with its own unit of account um, when the people that are most needed for the operation of the co-op 
don't necessarily have access or interest in, you know, the, yet. They don't necessarily have access or interest yet. It's, it's sort of like, this is, this is what I think is one of the biggest challenges around crypto adoption and, and network creation. And I'm hoping you have an I answer. That, <laughs> well, you know, if, if I did, I'd, I'd have a lot more money than I do now. Um, but, you know, huh. I think there needs to be, I think your point about games and the thing, the, whatever the unit of account in that game is, is a really important point. And I think a lot of the activities that we end up doing as humans kind of can get boiled down to that. Like, are you playing this sort of cryptocurrency game where you're trying to collect these coins and then sell them to other people? Or, you know, are you playing the farmer game where you're growing crops and then, you know, using those to nourish more life and sell those to more people? Um, so finding existing sort of economies and I guess, you know, Bucky has an excellent talk on dissipative and additive cycles and mm -hmm. sort of how those get used to create um, complex systems in nature and also in, and figuring out kind of, using your terminology, how those games work and what's the unit of account there. And then once you have that, putting that in some sort of distribution and then, and then letting people play that game, it's only going to have value or bootstrap itself if people are interested in doing it. So there is kind of a fundamental marketing and, and sort of sales function here where you need to convince people that this thing that you want to do this game that you want them to play is worth playing and once they're convinced then they've sort of bought into the idea of your money and those sort of incentives and in, in, in economic games that you've designed will, will drive them so so now my like play putting on my devil's advocate hat yes you know, why why on earth would we devote all of this energy are you devoting all of this energy to you know this sort of abstraction of um creating the building blocks for people to to define a new game to play and invite people to play that game um as a theory of change like what does that uniquely create that I couldn't just do by starting a shareholder-based business and competing for U.S. dollars? What does it make possible that otherwise is just impossible? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to kind of the political question that we asked earlier, like, on this sort of, like, libertarian, anarchist, like, lower government, in this sort of realm of thought, you know, how do we deal with these large centralized power structures that have kept getting larger and more centralized throughout the last couple of hundred years? And, you know, the, this sort of right-left dynamic that we've had since the French Revolution has essentially been statist in a lot of ways. And on both the right and the left, the power of the state has continued to increase. 
And those large entities and corporations, be they government, those large entities, be they governments or cor corporations, um, you know, push a lot, like push a lot of externalities out there. And I think a more decentralized, using a very loaded word, mm. um, organization system where there's many more smaller organizations and entities is going to be more dynamic and able to recover more quickly from negative events. You know, if you're thinking of a large coordinated response to an earthquake or a natural disaster, it's not as fast or as effective as the coordination that the people on the ground who have actually experienced the disaster are going to do it themselves. Um, and they're going to be able to, you know, go find out which of their neighbors lost their homes and shelter people and efficiently distribute the food and resources that they have until they can kind of get some more of this like larger help. And if you're thinking about a world that's going to be changing drastically with climate change and um, climate change mainly, um, our government structures are very slow to change right now. And I think most of the rich world is kind of experiencing this political gridlock and this return to populism. And how do we provide a different vision for the future that's something that people would want to live in? And, and I personally think that this sort of vision of decentralizing this power, bringing more of it back to these communities and people who are actually dealing with these issues on the front line and, and letting them make the decisions is probably a better way to do things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't I, know if that's answering your question there, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess I have the same bias. Um, yeah. And I wonder, is there, what are things that are better accomplished through some top-down central mechanism and what are well, things any, anything that requires huge amounts of resources or mobilization is inherently difficult for small teams and organizations if yeah. you think about I, I think that the moonshot is a great example of that it was this really far out technology on a lot of different fronts that had to be assembled in this massive expenditure of money and human effort to get to the moon um, yeah, thinking and, and about coordinating, coordinating a decentralized network of autonomous communities to get to the moon, uh, it feels unlikely that that ever would happen. We'll eat to a ship. <laughs> and, and so, so, you know, maybe arguing even with myself here, <laughs> um, is is uh, taking this sort of like capacity building for local uh, on a local decentralized scale an approach that can actually um, appropriately meet, for instance, the existential crisis of climate change, where there is only one planet, for instance. And what is the, what does it mean if it can't? And what does it mean if it can? You know, I, I... This is, assumes kind of that there's either a centralized approach or a decentralized approach, not mm -hmm. a mix of approaches that will end up working. Totally. And 
I think if you look at the way systems are built, they're essentially layered and we kind of like layer these games on top of each other and there's complex interplay between these different layers. Some of them are more decentralized, like i.e. the decision making is widely dispersed and some of them are more centralized. And the way that interplay works, I think, depends on any given system. Now, thinking that there's not going to be some level of global coordination to solve this environmental problem that's going to be kind of have sort of this central focusing point, I, I think is naive, potentially, mm -hmm. but thinking that you're not going to need a lot of independent actors to make sort of a squad level if you kind of think of the military that way um like that's extremely important you know if you think about the military as a sort of like very centralized top-down command and control structure the way that military power has evolved is you know you're, you're sort of you end up pushing this um power out to units on the fringes i, I mean ships in the age of sail were pretty decentralized you know you would sort of write an order that says, go attack Calais, and you'd send off these 50 ships, right. and they each different commanders, and then in the heat of battle, and like as they're getting there, they're all kind of making decisions on their own. And if you look at the sort of like, the way US troops get deployed, they're in like small squads, and each of those squads kind of has goals, and then they move independently. Um, so there are these kind of interplays between centralization and decentralization that I think are kind of necessary. So this is just the, these sort of like decentralized technologies and this ability to organize in this way. It's not the only way to do things and you can also use it to build centralized systems as well. So um, I, I think that there's going to be an interplay between the two, but building in the ability to decentralize in, in the ability to sort of like push this power out to the edges into the core of the system, I think is extremely important because if you don't, then you have a system that only tends towards centralization mm -hmm. and really disenfranchises large groups of people and who are involved in that system. And that leads to disengagement and not as strong of a community around this idea. And when we're talking around about the idea that we as humanity need to be stewards of our globe, that's this huge idea that requires like buy-in from tons of independent entities and, and, and individuals. And um, doing that in a centralized way is very hard because it's easy to alienate people. Allowing these more free-floating communities to sort of be trying their own experiments towards this top level goal of more sustainable stewardship of the environment seems to be a more promising and quicker way to get to the end goal that we're looking for than by having some top-down approach where you're sort of only pulling a couple of levers at a time whereas you could have this mini arm banded approach where you've got all of these independent entities sort of like pulling levers that you can't even see as the centralized entity mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love the invitation to to look into the layers of this, or, or as I sometimes refer to it as like the nested nature, you know, yeah. like, like a Russian doll, you know, it's like, yeah, their um, systems are nested within each other. And the, the paradox is there's 
the need for sort of like global coordination and sort of like boundary conditions that all of the sub games follow. But then yeah. people need to have the ability to just like generate their own social contracts and initiatives and, you know, within that just innovate infinitely. So yeah, it's, it's a cool, I mean, to me, there, there is, you know, what you're saying really resonates, which is it isn't actually that there's one way or the other. It's that in some way, what we're, what the, the aim of this movement is to find the way to, for sort of the dy dynamic between initiative and coordination or centralization and decentralization to communicate intelligently and yeah. optimize in some way. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to put it. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of folks in this space who are kind of deeply skeptical of the way that we're doing things now. You know, if you look at my resume, I saw the beginnings of the financial crisis from the inside. That internship I did up in New York, before that, like right before that, Bear Stearns failed. <laughs> and then right after that, Lehman Brothers failed. And as you can imagine, sort of like working in New York up in the 40s, like right next to the JP Morgan building, I talked to a bunch of people and, you know, I kind of heard people what they were talking about and like how they thought the financial system might melt down and gold bugs and, and all that stuff. And I think that the way that we've kind of centralized control in a lot of these large banks and I think too big to fail is a great example of that. Um, his kind of centralized control of the economy in, in too few hands. And if you look at the wealth disparity that's increased pretty markedly since the seventies, um, I, I think the numbers bear that out. And yeah, that's kind of an orthogonal point though. So what, um, sort of a, 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 a slightly new topic, but I think very yeah. connected. What is the, what's the world that you're trying to create building these tools? You know, I, uh, I don't necessarily view there to be a single in state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I can tell you what I don't want. <laughs> okay. And it's, Future, uh, the the Uber population are using these digital social coordination technologies that the social networks have developed, and sort of weaponizing them on their population and enforcing this central control in a much more draconian, invasive, and personal way than has ever been possible before in history. I mean, this would make George Orwell blush. It's that future in that level of centralization is something that I think we as humans, like, you know, we in the West who value freedom and sort of individual autonomy view as terrifying. Mm -hmm. And that I, I, I don't know if that's the future we as humanity want. So in order to kind of fight that, you need to give power back to sort of individuals and small groups. And that's kind of, that's kind of what we do here in the blockchain world a bit. 
Right. So there's a so there's a layer to which the, what's being built is kind of a direct response to the sort of like surveillance capitalism approach, which is like yep. collect a huge amount of data and then manipulate people to get what you want, which in this case, in this day and age is like get people to buy shit. Um, yeah, well, in America, it's get people to buy shit. In right. China, it's get people to walk on the right side of the road, not spit, and for God's sake, don't ever think about Falun Gong or badmouth the Communist Party. Um, right. So, yeah. It's right. just like, what are the goals that you're setting for this system that you've built? Right, but the same tools can sort of be used. And, and what I'm hearing you say is, you know, this is sort of pushing those tools out to the edges so people can choose how yes. they how they relate to the ability to have you know this huge amount of information and you know so so like a group of people could get together create a a proof of stake network where they're like monitoring their own purchases and credit scores and 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 incentivizing themselves in some way that had yeah you know, but but the point isn't necessarily that those tools in and of themselves are bad, but that the that the right people need to be wielding them. Yes, and then I, I also think you need to have the option, you know, you need to be able to choose. And when you think back to this kind of loyalty voice and exit framework, you know, if you're in this draconian system, you should be able to exit it if you want to. And in this world where there's these kind of like multifaceted economic systems where people can kind of pick and choose, that that would be much more much more viable. I mean, if you look at the kind of world that this might produce, you know, I think in fiction it's probably been best done by Neil Stevenson in books like Diamond Age or Snow Crash and you know, we could debate up and down whether or not that's a that's a reality people want to live in. But um, that's kind of that's kind of the future that is represented by this in some ways. You know, I'm not saying like, yeah, I want Snow Crash future, but like, <laughs> what does a world of smaller autonomous governments or you know, in his world, files look like, and like, how does that play out in the real world? There's been fiction written around it, if you're interested. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Snow, I think Snow Crash is a good, perhaps... Did you read Diamond Age? Uh, I don't think I read Diamond Age. I'm trying to remember. I don't think I did, no. Gregory, let me go ahead and tell you. I just reread that for the third time recently, and it's just so good. If you like Snow Crash, Diamond Age is, like, better. Awesome. Anyway. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I uh, I love Neil Stevenson. I'm not sure I totally resonate with his sort of like politics, although I yeah I I'm, I'm compelled <laughs> I'm compelled by them, but I'm not sure I resonate yeah. with them. But the I really love the Baroque cycle of Neil's work. The Baroque cycle I thought was so fun and so I don't know if I've read that. Oh man, it's so good. It's it's like. Um, old right but it has some of the same like okay. it's it has some, like the same lineage of characters meaning it's old it's set in it's like historical fiction it's set in you know the 16 like 1640s up through like the early 1700s 
it's like the age of enlightenment and it's tracking the the rise of money basically and the rise of science and um the global expansion from europe um and you know there's a couple of the same character through lines as uh, uh as um the crypt uh cryptonomicon um which is also a super fun one, um, yeah. World War II, if anyone's yeah. interested. Um, yeah. and, and gold. It's like a gold hunt. That's yeah. a super fun book. I will have to, I will have to read this. Well, and Cryptonomicon is cool because it's basically like the creation of a digital currency, you know, pre-Bitcoin and what that looked like. And then there were some things, I think, happening at that time around gold-based currencies, I remember. Um, yeah. Gold-based digital yeah. currencies that he was probably sort of like obliquely writing about <laughs> that you know like in that history is really interesting because that first i forget what it was called like digigold or whatever it it failed because it was centralized right because there was a central yeah. point of failure the the government could basically say we would we don't want you to be issuing a gold-backed currency uh, please well I, yeah for for reasons that are pretty obvious and you know yeah <laughs> Totally. Totally. Well, so, hmm. Let's see. There's so much here. Well, what, what else are you reading right now? What's, what's at the top of your, uh, what's on your nightstand? What's at the top of your book? book oh, stand? let's see. I, I do a lot of audio books. So mm -hmm. Let's see what's up online. I've been going through the foundation series a bunch recently. Oh, fun. Yeah. Uh, by Isaac Asimov. I never, I never read those as a kid. Um, yeah, Diamond Age Foundation. Um, one book that I found interesting recently, and this is a whole another thread, is uh, Homo Deus by the author of Sapiens. Uh, yeah, a friend of mine was recently just chatting about about that. I didn't, um, I didn't totally get the synopsis, but you're in the middle of it right now. I finished it. Um, okay. It's so. If did you read Sapiens? No, but I'm sort of familiar with the, the thesis. Yeah, so share, the share, always, a brief, share a brief thesis about it, maybe. If, if the, the, the way that I always describe Sapiens is referential. So um, if you ever read Guns, Germs, and Steel? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like Guns, Germs, and Steel plus genetics is the way I describe Sapiens generally. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and Guns, Germs, and Steel kind of starts off with this fundamental question, which the author calls Yale's question. And it's... Uh, why does your people why do your people have so much cargo yet mine have so little and it sort of is what is what are the reasons behind um global wealth disparities and how did those come into being and sapiens kind of answers that question but goes back a little bit further and kind of talks genetically about um pre-humans and then goes all the way up through the modern era of technology and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and his second book, Homo Deus, kind of says like, well, we're at this place now where we have science and we've developed this ability to sort of change ourselves through genetics and through computing and really to have progress. But, you know, how do we measure that progress? And I think this is very applicable for a lot of the environmental stuff, work that you do is like, if we're just measuring that progress as global GDP, that's just like the sum of human activity on earth. And if we're just continually increasing that, we're gonna get to this place where 
we kind of destroy ourselves. Um, but in Homo Deus, he, he talks a lot about kind of ideologies and religions and sort of posits that they're roughly the same thing. Mm. Um, one of the most interesting pieces in the book that I found was when he told the story of the 20th century as a series of religious wars um, between different nationalist religions in World War One, and then through and then between different humanist religions in World War Two. And if you can kind of think about what the Nazis were doing is this very kind of exclusionary version of humanism, i.e. only Germans are humans, everything else is non-human and, and therefore must be kind of extinguished. Whereas the West kind of had this much more inclusive version of humanism hmm. that elevates the individual and believes that there's a much broader version of broader swath of people that are human and sort of like what the evolution of humanism looks like and how that might affect the future. Um, anyway, interesting book. I advise folks to check it out if you're interested in topics like that. Yeah, I'll put definitely put it on my Audible uh, list. Um, love being able to listen to books uh, with all, the, you know, just the way my life it, is. It's, it's so much Pretty better. fun. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, like, if I can clean the house and like read at the same time like that's better than just kind of sitting down and reading totally um, it's, i also it's, love going on long walks and yeah, exactly and, and, <laughs> books and yeah it's just fun i love that shit <laughs> totally. totally and as a as a papa sometimes as a dad sometimes i you know like i remember growing up i would I, when i was a kid my parents would you know like listen to public radio or whatever so oh, yeah in the background while i was playing or doing things but they'd be around you know whatever so sometimes as a dad you know i'll like hang out with my kids and put on an audiobook instead of like listening to the radio or whatever. Um, and, you know, sometimes I lose the thread of the book because I'm interact like I, the, the, you know, when push comes to shove, the attention needs to be on the kiddos. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. But, but, but it's still nice to be able to sort of like be flowing through a, a well formulated thought or a, you know, like a land, you know, like a novel or something like that. And, you know, and kind of have my kids along for the journey. It's kind of an interesting uh, experience. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the yeah, only I think it's fun. days doing that. <laughs> I, I grew up with a lot of spoken word audio and it took a lot of road trips as a kid and obviously NPR and all sorts of other talk radio. I, I really love audiobooks and podcasts. And it's just like a whole revolution taking place right now. I, I believe that this is the most at this, like it's the healthiest expression of spoken word like in terms of just the abundance of available content and how much people oh, yeah. are are Definitely. metabolizing and digesting that content that in history basically like, I, you know i think this goes back to this sort of idea that capitalism is kind of atomizing society and yeah totally people aren't having these kind of long-form discussions with their friends as much and they're not seeing them as much and Part of that is because I think political dialogue has become so contentious and sort of fractured that we've, a lot of people only find sort of communities of interest online. And, you know, how do you communicate with those folks? And spoken word audio is an excellent tool to sort of like this long form discussion that you and I are having, a bunch of other people can listen to this and sort of think like, think the same things we're thinking and sort of engage in those same thought trains. So 
is a way of passing on online culture. I think spoken word audio is uniquely powerful. Yeah, it's super cool. I mean, I, I'm just thinking, well, well, so what are, are you also a pod, podcast listener? Oh, yes. Um, what, what are some of your favorites? What are you listening to right now? You know, I, the one that got me into podcasts the most is uh, Dan Carlin. I really love his stuff. Both mm-hmm. his politics podcast, which I find extremely interesting, Common Sense, um, yeah. and then Hardcore History. Um, also on the history side of things, Revolutions from the guy who did History yeah. of World podcast. Totally. I really love um, um, What's his name? Um, Mike Duncan. Mike Duncan, yeah. Uh, it's, I'm, I've... I've got, I've been saving up a little stock of those to go through. He's in the Russian revolution right now. <laughs> it's, it's one of the better ones he's done in a while. You know, I think that the, he did a series on Central American revolutions that I don't have as much context on. And I, I had a bit of trouble with, but this uh, Russian history one I'm, I'm riveted by. I, I think his coverage is excellent. And, yeah, I um, I actually really loved the Central the Bolivarian and Mexican Revolution. Yeah, I spent so much time down there. Um, yeah, and and I agree. Like the ones, I, man, his Haitian Revolution one and the interrelationship between that and the sort of the 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 tail wagging the dog with the French Revolution. Uh, all yeah, it's so good. I mean, it's kind of like I feel like it should be required listening at this stage of our, you know, historical context for everybody to understand all of that. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, totally agree. This, I mean, this kind of gets back to something that I view as extremely important, which is learning history and the value of history. And I think especially in today's day and age, there's a lot of people who look and they say, oh, that's 30 years ago. That's completely irrelevant. They don't have anything to teach us. But I think the one thing that history teaches us all very vividly is that human nature never changes. Are and there any historical parallels with, because it seems to me like there's a, that history sort of has a, a sequence arc that, like a spiral. It's like, it's not ever exactly the same, but it kind of like has similar patterns, right? History like, doesn't repeat itself, but it sure as fuck rhymes. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> so what are we rhyming with right now from your perspective? You know, what is what is what is the era that this this crazy complex world that we're living in um, most seem like to you? I mean, you know, this is this is another thing that you know, even as somebody who just came out and said, I think history always has something to teach us and that is human nature and sort of like what humans do when pushed in extreme situations. And, and you can go back and read that in a wide variety of extreme situations. If, if you're talking about crypto, you know, I, I think the wildcat banking era in the United States after the abolition of the first bank of bank of the United States um, is interesting and potentially informative. Um, when the, was that? Uh, when, when I want to say 1830s, 40s and 50s. And I, yeah, anyway, there's a few good books on it. I, I have, I need, I need to, there was this one that I, I have bookmarked somewhere that I need to download. Um, it says but uh, I, I 1836 that, to 1863, free banking. Yeah, that sounds about it. right. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, right. and uh, the, the, 
the introduction of the greenback to pay for war debt during the Civil War kind of ended that, um, which if you're talking about centralization, uh, <laughs> pretty obvious there. Um, but an interesting, an interesting era in history, if you want to talk about sort of a previous era where wealth was as centralized as, as it is now and the current historical dynamics were enforced, were enforced, I think the history of the Gilded Age and the sort of tech titans of that era, i.e. railway, electricity, banking, mm -hmm. um, is very interesting. I think financial and monetary history, I think, has a lot to teach us. But on the whole, we're living in a world with almost 10 times the amount of people that there have been on average in the world. If you look through back throughout history, human population has kind of gone somewhere between 500 million and a billion people and sort of stayed steady somewhere in there for the last few thousand years. And something happened around the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution in Europe that caused this massive population explosion um, and all of the technology that supports that around agriculture and um, social technology to enable us to live together. Um, Medicine, yeah. But yeah, well, that's a huge one. Um, <laughs> thank you for getting the obvious one there. Um, and I think we're in this place where we really need to start thinking bigger and differently as a society. When there's 10 times as many people, things have changed drastically and we need to really rethink things. Like when the United States was created, there were 3 million people there. There's like 300 million people there now, here now. So that's a hundred times more people. And we haven't fundamentally changed our constitution. So, you know, maybe it's time to start thinking about some of these fundamental kind of operating system level humanity things that we're, that we're doing and sort of update them. I mean, from the time I'm 32 and when I was born, it was the mid eighties and there was around a little under 4 billion people. There's almost double the amount of people now than there was when I was a kid. That's crazy to me. And I think it's something that people just don't think about enough. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And in addition to the exponential increase of population, there's also an exponential in increase of technology, specifically digital yeah. technology. There's a bunch of other yeah. technologies, interestingly enough, that don't seem to be evolving much. Um, but, but digital technology is completely different. I, I'm just, I was just reflecting, like when I was my parents, uh, I mean, my, my family was pretty connected, you know, like kind of kept up with the releases of Apple, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and mine too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I remember a time before computers were yeah. in where per, I remember a time before personal computers. Obviously, I was born, also born in the computer age, but um, it's just so different. You know, people, I remember being a kid and like you had to meet with people or to navigate somewhere. It was just a different, you know, if you're going to meet somebody at a particular time and place, the reality of that pre-smartphone and post-smartphone is stark. Drastically different. Drastically different. I asked, I was, 
this is a couple of years ago now, but I was at a an event up in Portland and my phone had like shit itself on the plane ride and yeah. I had to order a new phone and I was like traveling without a phone. So I had to like print out directions. And, and at one point I needed to get somewhere and I had to go ask somebody for directions. Yep. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And then I was like, my phone's dead. I, I can't. And then they were like, Oh, and I watched them sit there and think like, how do I give this person directions? <laughs> and it's it's a skill that we've almost entirely lost, weirdly enough. In in what in a very short time, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah. And and I think that that's a really interesting piece, which is you know technology and tools allow us to optimize specific tasks, whether it's you know um, chopping a tree down or you know, uh, or tilling a field or, um, you know, breaking open a shell to get the oyster or whatever it is, you know, it's like, there's a thing I want to do it easier and, um, quick, quicker, but what are the fundamental capabilities that we need? You know, I guess, I, I guess where I'm going is there's a cost to us in which we lose the the previous maybe the, there was a higher degree of human capability that was necessary <clears throat> when it was harder to do whatever the task is like navigating like if i'm going to navigate across the ocean by the stars i have i personally have to have that capability whereas if i'm going to navigate across the ocean by a gps you know it, someone just needed the capability to use math and you know, computer engineering to create a tool for me to use. So I don't actually need the capability anymore. And I'm just curious, what do you think are some of the, the fundamental capabilities that we've either lost or at risk of losing that technology actually is um, kind of contraindicated, <laughs> where we as humans like need to be able to do this stuff? I mean, I think this goes like, as we're sort of automating a lot of these more complex, I guess, physical tasks like that, you know, the where we're spending more of our time and energy is on this kind of social coordination piece and in this realm of ideas um, and, and ideologies. It's, kind of I think that for like because of the way that we've evolved and like who we are as a species like we do need to do some of these complex physical tasks and I think people that don't end up sort of cultivating some sort of um, hobby or skill or something like that they end up dissatisfied and sort of like missing something that they kind of wish they had how much the digital variance of this can be a replacement for more traditional things is something that you know I think we're all kind of on the cutting edge of like is coding a type of artisanal activity like woodworking <laughs> and do we get the same kinds of uh hmm. 
we get the same kinds of satisfaction out of it. You know, as somebody who did work at a craft for a little while, mine was cooking. Um, I, I have my own view on that. I, I do personally believe that the coding and cooking are very kind of simpatico in a lot of ways, but yeah, like, do we? So what you're we... saying is, is yes, you could, like, yeah. there can be meaning generated by being, like, just intrinsically by, like, taking the time and care to be a good coder. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you know, going back to this kind of communities thing, like, that's a social consensus of the other people who code, and, like, will they welcome you into this community, and, like, what are the steps necessary to do that like how are we going to govern ourselves you know those are all questions too so just out of curiosity um, well first off do you need to go right now or do you have some extra time to keep chatting let me see i think i have another 30 minutes awesome um so as someone who is not a coder but who has been i mean back in the day i um Back in the day, I used, you know, I did like HTML and blah, blah, blah when I was younger. Yeah. Um, as all that stuff was starting to move, it's been a long time. I don't consider myself a coder at all. Um, yeah. If I was to be like, you know, hey, I'm in this world, I should at least have a basic level, kind of like I should be able to whittle a stick. I may not be able to build a house, but I should be able to whittle a stick <laughs> to use the, you know, like woodworking artisan metaphor where where does somebody like me start in terms of just building literacy and capacity yeah i mean it's funny that's a really interesting question and i think because it's such a complex area and it is so multifaceted like i.e there's a bunch of different whittling sticks that you could start with mm -hmm. what i always tell people when they ask me a question like this is what do you do with computers that you'd like to do faster or you'd like to be able to automate? And what are the sort of programming tools that people traditionally use to do that and then start there? Hmm. Because anchoring something that's extremely abstract and complex in your understanding and being able to internalize it, you have to have something existing to sort of grab onto. Otherwise, it's this group of buzzwords and vocabulary that you're just sort of trying to pile abstractions on top of abstractions. Um, so grounding it in something you already understand and work with actively, I think is kind of the best, the best way to get into it. And for a lot of folks, you know, some people are dealing with a lot of data or spreadsheets and figuring out how to manipulate that data using a different programming language is an easy way to sort of understand the basic syntax and vernacular of a programming language, potentially more, depending on how um, how your exploration goes, and then finding the areas that sort of spark joy and bring you interest within those things and, and exploring those. Because the cool thing about computers is that every little piece of it, when you ask some question like, why is that like that? It can lead you down this rabbit hole that is infinitely deep, <laughs> almost, especially as a beginner in learning about computers and learning about computer architecture and how these systems are designed. Like that's something that I've found extremely interesting is like when I find something that sparks my interest going and just chasing that. Um, so grounding it in something, you know, and then, and then following what you're interested in and then enjoy. Did, were you, uh, did you 
grow up coding or is it something that you chose to pay attention to and build a skill in as an adult? It's the second one for me. Um, I was always in advanced math classes and uh, physics classes and like definitely I think that helped me as an adult to kind of jump into it because I had had exposure to a lot of the fundamental concepts. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't do any coding as a child. I, I, I really wish I had been exposed to it earlier because I, I, I think I would have enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. As a, this is sort of a, you know, random aside here, but what, you know, as someone who has their livelihood connected to build, you know, essentially building a, a software based toolkit. Um, so yep. you spend a lot of time, you know, on your computer. Yeah. What do you find is necessary in order to kind of like keep sane and healthy? Exercise, nurturing close relationships, seeing other people. <laughs> do, you, do you time box? Sleeping, sleeping, sleeping eight hours a night. Yeah. <laughs> and, and do you, are you able to like, uh, like appropriately time box your work or does it kind of bleed? I in? think I think I do a good job sometimes and I think I do a not very good job other times. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's uh maybe not the answer you were looking for, but no, I, I mean, think sometimes yeah. when the work is really engaging, it's easy to kind of overexpose yourself and end up, you know, working too hard and burning yourself out and that's kind of the downside to this whole like follow your passion programming thing. Totally. <laughs> is that you, you do have to like rein your passion in every now and then and say like, Hey, you got to sleep or Hey, you got to like <laughs> spend time on the things that you really care about in life, not just coding. Um, Especially so, when your passion yeah. is you to be doing social coordination work on a giant decentralized network with people around the world in which, yeah there may you may be like dealing with breaking changes that in some sort of update that needs to happen with a whole giant group of people and you can get sucked into that like it's totally not, it's, yeah, it's a totally it's, different yeah, thing than just working on your own little software project yeah and i mean for me that's as somebody who learned coding later in life you know when i started coding and when I sort of decided to take the plunge and do it professionally, what I always said to myself is the value that I bring is not that I'm the greatest coder ever. You know, there's a bunch of people who've been doing this since they were kids and I'm not going to catch up with that amount of time spent. I do have a lot of other experience that I can add to this understanding of code and engineering. And bring a different perspective to that and, and help explain this, these highly technical subjects to people who are maybe less technical and maybe understand it less. So that's kind of the way I've always viewed my role. Um, I, I'm just fascinated by the technical side of things and love, love ripping through GitHub repos and, and trying out new code and um, staying up with all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you need to convince people to use this code. And to do that, they have to understand how it works and they have to want to use it. And I think that that's a much harder problem in a lot of ways than the problem of writing the actual software. You know, um, 
if you look at Libra and Facebook, I think that's a great example. To write the Rust code that builds the blockchain, like they got a nice team together and got that done. And they have a pretty significant implementation that they have working and, and that's great for them. But the the hard part is, as you mentioned, the social coordination part and the ability to like actually get users on that network. Um, and for them that runs through the US Congress and they have to get a bunch of approvals from worldwide regulators and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, that's the area that I, I kind of view as my core competency, kind of that intersection between people and code. Zaki kind of describes it as they understand people and they understand code, but they're more people than code. Hmm. And the way I've always kind of described it is 50% code, 50% people skills. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. So, so what, what emerges for me now at this stage of the conversation is kind of wanting to know what, I'm like, I'm just sort of thinking about how the, the social court, I have two threads that maybe uh -huh. we choose one of them to focus on. One is the social thread of coordinating a group of validators and delegators and creating kind of like healthy around a shared interest and what you've been learning at doing mm -hmm. that work with Cosmos and specifically around the Cosmos hub, but also how that relates to what you're seeing in the, like in the, in the interchain, in the, you know, other zones and hubs spinning up and, you know, like, are, what are you learning about, you know, groups of people coming together and governing public infrastructure together or, or like a common infrastructure? Um, and, What's been surprising? And not one that I've thought a whole ton about. <laughs> nice. That's a that's a really interesting question and not one I've I've really thought a whole ton about. So I'll just give you some kind of unfiltered ideas. Um, you know, my first experience here at Cosmos was kind of that that testnet program and helping build that up, and um, that to me felt very familiar to a lot of other open source work that I had done sort of evangelizing and building communities around software on the internet. And, um, but there's this additional added social coordination mechanism because in order to start and upgrade these networks, you have to get a bunch of people all around the world to turn their computers on and off at the same time. Um, so I've learned a lot of, about, uh, different messaging platforms <laughs> that's that's a it's a really dumb way to look at it uh, I, no, I, but, I, I kind of make yeah. that joke because I have like eight different, eight different messaging platforms that I have to use on my day-to-day -day. so uh it's that's, insane. that's funny but <laughs> yeah it's yeah totally you know insane. I think the reason for that is because in order to do this sometimes you kind of have to meet people where they are you know and if somebody wants to talk to you on riot you're going to need to talk to them on Riot. If somebody wants to receive updates over Twitter, you're going to need to push them out there or, you know, one of the many other platforms out there. So, you know, having a community like ours that's global and spaced all around the world, um, meeting people where they are has been extremely important. Being able to reach out across a number of different channels to coordinate some of these larger upgrades and, and, and whatnot. Another thing is, um 
there's no time that works for everyone in Asia, America, and Europe. You just can't find it. Um, <laughs> that's just sort of a one-off observation. Yeah. Um, but. So what do you yeah, do? I mean, do you do you rotate through who gets the crappy time? <laughs> uh, not yet. <laughs> we should be doing that. That's what um, we've been thinking about. But, we've been thinking about just yeah. like having starting one place and then like every time there's an upgrade, somebody else gets the crappy time. <laughs> I think that's by far the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Are, <laughs> I would totally agree with you on that one. Is there anything that's surprising you about? Um, yeah. Is there anything that's like, wow, didn't see that coming? in terms of just this social coordination either on the challenge side or like that that actually is like wow this is surprisingly graceful or fun or enlivening that it's like an aspect for, of this that didn't that, that wasn't apparent before yeah for all the talk about how toxic and tribal like crypto is you know one of the things that's been really nice for me is to find a bunch of strangers on the internet who are just awesome people and um I think we're kind of intentional about trying to be pretty open and a, a good community to be in. Um, we don't have a ton of official codes of conduct and stuff like that, but finding this group of people online and then being able to meet them in a series of conferences, you know, you're, you're one of those folks, obviously. I think we met for the first time in real life up in Toronto and mm -hmm. I've seen you at a few other conferences since then. Um, finding this group of people that I'm a part of and, and, and help to organize has been a really cool and kind of unexpected experience for me. I grew up in a kind of mid-sized southern town and, and went to a small school and sort of always had a very tight-knit social community and, and never really developed a bunch of online friendships. And um, developing those online friendships, being able to meet those folks in person. And the longer and longer it's gone on, the, the more and more I really value it and enjoy it and do really feel a real sense of community um, around that. So I think for me, that's been kind of surprising and something that I, I don't didn't think I would necessarily find. Cool. That's exciting. Like they're just like the human I've experienced that too. Um, yeah. In, in the cosmos world of just like, wow, you know, what a amazing thing that, um, yeah, there's something about that. That's that I found really surprising and exciting. Um, yeah. More so that, you know, and I've been to some other crypto conferences. I'm not like, you know, not as many as some and not as few as others probably. Yeah. But, um, yeah. That I've, I think is, there. well, there's some things that I think are unique about the Cosmos community, but I think there's a larger pattern, which is people who don't know each other, who are working together on something because they've independently come to care about it. Um, and yeah meeting each other for the first time is and having like totally diverse experiences and backgrounds and you know uh, but having some common 
goals and caring about the same thing is a really, really fun thing. <laughs> it's really fun. It, yep. it, it's totally different. And, you know, I, I think like that, living with people, <laughs> for instance, where you don't necessarily. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. In that experience has sort of given me hope that this idea of being able to build these communities around these like sets of economic incentives with these these chains and, and then having them trade with each other like that that is a really viable thing and yeah because at the end of the at the at the end of the day it's like this kind of ideology or this this idea that we all kind of share that you know we've spent a lot of this podcast kind of talking about um and we've developed a system to help us grow and support that idea and we're running it and like you're right we did kind of come together from all over the world because we all kind of share this idea so yeah it's a cool thing it's a really cool thing <laughs> yeah it definitely and i think one of the things that's unique about cosmos in this is that you know the the founders of tendermint um Jay and Ethan, respectively, and the the first people who are working with them are all sort of like uniquely, I don't know, I, I think humble is an accurate word, but I don't think it's just that. Like, there's, mm -hmm. there, it feels like there's way more space in the Cosmos community for people like Zachy and Sonny and yourself and, um, and many other characters, zone, different zones and validators and people to have be carving leadership space out. And um, because something about the core idea is, is that that is actually the point somehow. Um, Centralization, you yeah. know, and pushing this power out to the edges. And like, at the core, the system allows that and like, the communities that it builds are a function of that are aligned yeah. around that as the yeah as like a core value and that's really i think actually strangely enough unique in the crypto space because somehow in most other projects it's like people are are sort of like um think that their way is the way it's like this is the way to decentralization Whereas in Cosmos, it's more like, well, this is, yeah, it's kind of ironic, right? It, it, it's really ironic. It's hilarious to me. I, like, I, I see it all the time, and it just yeah. cracks me up. <laughs> yeah. And, what, and what's the, so like, this is the one way to achieve decentralization. It's like, oh, okay, you know, huh. Whereas in Cosmos, I experience it more like as, huh, we're going to build some tools to try our best to achieve decentralization. Um, and there's sort of more uh, like willingness. I experience this a lot, which I super appreciate a willingness to be open and honest about where the trade-offs are and where mm -hmm. things fall short, which feels to me again, as like sort of essential for a healthy community to be able to be like, Oh, well, here's the trade-offs. So if you're trying to do that, you know, the trade-off may not work out. Um, but if you're trying to do this, it's right on, you know? So 
that to me, and again, I think that is one of the fundamental values that a community focused on building tools for, um, for folks to define their own set of rules and create social coordination mechanisms is that, like, that's just is needed. People need to be able to be informed about the tool set they're choosing, basically. Yeah. Totally. I, I, I 100% agree with that. And it's kind of, I think it's kind of really informed by the original ethos of the cryptocurrency ecosystem and kind of this cyberpunk, cypherpunk ideal. And it's, that's cool to me. I, I, I believe in a lot of those same things. And it, it's cool to find a, a bunch of other people who do too. Cool. Well, um, this has been a fantastic conversation. I super appreciate you taking the time, Jack, and, you know, um, delve into some of these bits. Hopefully this conversation serves some of the listeners. Um, I'm, I'm going to be thinking a little bit more, but some of the key points that emerged for me that I feel like are worth thinking about more is, you know, some of the stuff you were bringing up around, um, that I kind of made into, you know, a dyad or like, you know, um, uh, thesis, antithesis or whatever you might want to, however you might want to talk about it, but just like the balance between coordination and initiative that somehow proof of stake is working at the intersection of those. And, um, that feels so on point to what needs to happen in the world and I'm just super grateful for your work in that and just kind of like stewarding and um, being on point with the code and being on point with the social uh, coordination and inviting people to participate. So yeah, I'm super grateful for your work in the world and for you taking the time to have a chat with, with me. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. And this is, I, I love having talks like this. And, and again, it's one of the reasons I love crypto is a bunch of people want to talk about stuff like this all the time. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me on and the work that you all are doing over at Region, I think is incredibly challenging. And how do you measure these things, quantify them and actually like develop communities around fixing some of these environmental issues that we're seeing? I think it's the probably the hardest problem that we're facing as a society today so really cool to see you guys trying to use our technology to go solve some of those problems and having a lot of success so um really admire the work that you guys do as well um and and thank you very much for your time thanks jack yep awesome talk soon ciao